cliffcentral.com. All right, it is time for us to get into the burning platform for this morning. This is what we do on a Thursday. And I'm very, very excited about our guests who will be joining us. I just want to throw this in quickly before we get to the burning platform. Because Bakabantu and I asked a question, and it seems like a kind of boring surface-level question. But I'm, I'm telling you, we think about this stuff more than we think about anything else, especially when it's a cold day like today. So we asked, would you rather have 34-degree summer all year or 6-degree winter all year, if those are your only two options? And it is overwhelming, I have to say. 70% of people say they would rather have summer all year, even if it was over 34 degrees. And 30% of people saying six degrees winter all year. Only 30%, it's a landslide. If this was a, an election, we would have a two-thirds majority and be able to change the constitution. So good for all the summer fans. Thank you very much. That's all we need to know. Let me welcome, of course, Canton Pele, who is a regular co-host on the Burning Platform. Canton, you... Uh, you're looking silver and 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 time honoured, uh, <laughs> of wisdom this morning. How are you? I'm I'm excellent. I'm sitting in my um, <clears throat> other office out in Rudaport because I had to do the school run this morning, and okay. so dropped my daughter off um, a full hour earlier than usual because it's ten <laughs> minutes. Uh, the school's ten minutes away from where I am. And, uh, of course, I had to transport my studio mic and so forth across to my office to rig it up here. But all it all in, seems to all be working. In the cold. All in the cold, and we appreciate it. I mean, people were asking where you were the other day, and they said it's not the same without Canton, and they're complaining, and you know how people get. So uh, let's get straight into it because we've got Dr. Jonathan Witt joining us in a moment or two. We want to talk about the NHI bill. Um, and we've got someone from Joburg's council called Councillor Belinda Kaiser Echezanjoku, who's going to tell us about the budget vote, which was conducted yesterday. But I don't know if you heard, and I, I know you've got lots to say about this, so I want to just open it up to you straight away before the others join us. Uh, what is going on with Donald Trump and these indictments and the fact that he's going to be arrested and they're saying he'd go to jail for 400 years? Do you have any comment on this? Is it a very, very stupid move from the Biden administration or is it clever, brilliant politicking? What do we think? Look, it's, it's one of those, those really interesting things where the act that has been used to charge Trump was actually passed in 1917. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it's effectively an espionage act that, uh, so it's not just simply related to the carrying of documents. Okay, they are working under the assumption that making use of these documents, in fact, was jeopardizing the lives of uh, people in the armed forces because it purportedly contained things like um, battle plans to take out Iran and stuff like that. And uh, so it's it's a very interesting twist on things because they're not charging them on the same basis that um, people would be using against Joe Biden for keeping classified documents in his space. So on the one hand, it is selective prosecution. On the other hand, what it is doing is it's allowing the Democrats to play to the narrative that uh, uh, this man is a threat to society and should not be allowed to regain the White House no matter what. It's a very high-stakes game that's being played out right now, Gareth. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, so the question is right now, whether it has any legal standing, I think it's going to go all the way to the uh, the apex court in the United States, and they're going to find in Trump's favor because ultimately, as the um, the commander in chief of the United States, 
at any given stage, you know, quite rightly, he has the ability to say this is declassified or this is not. Does he actually have to file it and say that it was declassified? No, I don't think so. But in between, you know, it's going to be a long process because on the assumption that he gets convicted um, in the primary courts and then there'll be an appeal process and there's an election being fought in the meanwhile. So it's it's long and complicated. And, uh, and meanwhile, uh, Joe Biden is continuing to stumble and they don't have another candidate that's really capable of stepping no. up and taking on Trump. I mean, they're talking, uh, about, they're, talking about Gavin Newsom and they're talking about I mean, there's some, there's some bizarre names that are going. Obviously, no one's talking about Kamala Harris because they would rather have no president than President Kamala. But, um, it would be interesting. Yes. The interesting thing, uh, you know, the dark horse for me is, is RFK, um, Robert yeah. Kennedy uh, Jr. Uh, media is going on a, the US media I'm talking about is doing their damnedest to play down his numbers and, they keep uh, saying, no, he doesn't have hope in hell. They have a lot to say about his speech impediment. Yeah. But um, it, it, it's a, a very interesting turn of events in terms of uh, RFK positioning himself exactly where he is right now. And I strongly suspect that a lot of Republicans who are frankly, I, I think, uh, a bit up, uh, uptight about voting for Trump because uh, <laughs> because he's crass, you know. I mean, l- let's be very clear: Trump Trump is decidedly crass, and uh, they look to RFK as a potential to uh, to so, fill that gap. So I, 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 I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this. We're not going to answer any 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 serious questions about it at this point because there's so much that's still in the air, and as you say, it's a very high stakes game. So we'll have to see how it plays out. But here at home. On Wednesday morning, we started the show by talking about the NHI bill, which has been passed. And I know uh, Dr. Jonathan Witt's got some things he can he can and can't say. Is there anything you can't say about this, or are you allowed as a citizen to have an opinion about this, Dr. Witt? And what do we think? What do we think is actually going to happen here? This NHI bill's been passed by our, our moron parliament. Uh, do we need to- Before Jonathan says anything, Gareth, we need to point out that he's not a doctor; he's an acclaimed journalist. That's correct. <laughs> Go ahead. What do you say? Uh, I have no idea what I am and am not allowed to say because, unfortunately, uh, the censorship model is based on the sort of timing of everything. So I assume I'm allowed to comment on this at the moment, but, um, you know, who knows? Um, yeah, where to start with the NHI? Uh, there's, there's a lot to it. Um, simply put, it is the most catastrophic a piece of legislation that we uh, have had placed in South Africa in our history. Um, and uh, I'd say modern history for now, but eventually it will kill more people, black and white, than apartheid. And um, that's just the reality. And if you think ESCOM is a big deal, or you think BE has caused problems, or you think the ANC as a whole has been damaging to this country, you have no idea what will happen when we don't have health care. None. So why is it so bad? I mean, that's that, that that's a hell of a claim to start the, the show with this morning. It's the worst mm. thing that's ever, worst piece of legislation that's ever been promulgated, and we've had some pretty shitty legislation in this country. So why is it so bad? What's it going to do if it goes well, exactly the way you want it to? Okay, so first, if you don't have power, you can kind of make a plan. 
and if you don't have water, you can probably still make some sort of plan. Um, as people across this country, those in poverty have had to do for decades now. Um, and certainly a lot of us now dealing with power issues like myself this morning um, mm -hmm. have learned to deal with. Um, if you don't have health care, there is nothing you can do. Uh, if you get a disease and you are unable to get someone to treat it, or the health service that exists is unable to treat it, then um, you, 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 you are screwed. There is nothing you can do. Um, and that is why this is so catastrophic. Um, and, you know, the, the, the NHI, so I suppose let's steel man the argument for a second. So a lot of people will say, well, I saw the Discovery CEO saying, don't panic. It's not a big yeah. deal. But if you listen to his comments around not panicking, a lot of that is saying things like it's going to take a long time to implement. Um, it's very complex. Um, it'll take, you know, a decade or more and it won't look like what it looks like on paper currently. And, you know, the government will have to bring in private players or people who know what they're doing in order to get it right. Those are sort of his comments. He's not saying that this is good legislation necessarily on the face of it. He's saying there's caveats and he believes those caveats will come into play. Those caveats have never come into play for the ANC on any other issue. Why would they hear? Um, but if you steel man the argument, a lot of people will say, well, we currently have uh, somewhere in the region of uh, 11 million people, nine, between 9 and 11 million people uh, you, making use of, of medical aids. And that's mm -hmm. not the entire use of the private healthcare sector, I might add, because a lot of people access the private healthcare sector using cash. And um, furthermore, every single general practitioner uh, is a private healthcare provider. So if you think, well, it's great, um, I am now going to have access to all these hospitals, uh, which I haven't had access to because I don't have a medical aid. Well, no, and you're probably going to have your GP taken away from you too. Um, so so there's, a, there's this entire network that the theory is, is that poor people will now have access to healthcare. And it's not fair that, you know, we've got, say, 10 million people who have access to private healthcare and 50 million who don't. And so we're just equalizing everything. No, and so we'll just we'll basically make it everyone has no access to healthcare. So, so this this is the problem. The problem is, is you could, in theory, target giving more people access to good quality healthcare. That is what we should be doing anyway. Absolutely, you should be saying we want to be able to have all sixty million people have access to the quality of healthcare the average executive in Santon has access to. That mm -hmm. is a noble thing to do. Um, and so if you, if you, if you engage in programs that would do that, that would be great. The problem is, is the NHR promises to do that by essentially bringing everyone down to the same level as the state system. Standard socialist kind of thinking yes, that the pie is only so big. We now have to split it into ever smaller pieces and everyone suffers more. But at least if we're all suffering equally, then, you know, equality is more important than anyone actually getting any health care. So basically, we'll all be in the shitty situation. That yeah, well, it's, actually, it's actually far more insidious than that, Gareth. Uh, uh, and I just want to uh, point out a couple of things. So I've actually uh, devoted a chapter in my, uh, my forthcoming book to the question of the National um, uh, Health Insurance Bill. And I, I pointed out a couple of examples. So I'm just going to read you very briefly the first couple of paragraphs of it. Okay. I was in a serious accident in 1999, 
which left me with a broken femur, shattered humerus, three cracked ribs on the left and two on the right, and both lungs punctured. Nonsense. You've always, had, you've always had a good sense of humor. You're humorous. <laughs> then in 2012, I contracted viral encephalitis. And more Jeez. recently in 2016, my youngest daughter was born 10 weeks premature and spent the next six weeks in neonatal intensive care unit. Mm-hmm. Today, I'm in extremely good shape for someone who's turned 61. My daughter is as happy and healthy as you'd like a seven-year-old to be. And because we were both able to access world-class treatment from the private sector, and mm-hmm. medical aid picked up the bulk of those costs. And now we fast forward to um, the National Health Insurance Bill. And if it had been law during the incidents I just described, my daughter and I would be dead. Very simply, because... Jonathan's not so, exaggerating. He's saying people, people, it's going to cost lives. Exactly. So I work, I work in public health care and I, I think it needs to be stated that there are very good doctors, nurses, et cetera, healthcare providers, um, in public health care. And there are times when public health care works as well or even better in some instances than private health care. Um, <laughs> well, that's one example, but I'll, but I will also tell you that if you are involved in a major accident, as you describe in Canton, and you end up being taken to Baraguanath Hospital, um, the level of trauma care you will get there is no different to the level of trauma care you will get at the best, um, trauma hospitals in this country. Um, but that is, that is not necessarily the case everywhere. And this is, this is the issue. It's about the, the average standard. And so the average standard in public we know is a problem because there are, there are pockets of excellence, obviously. Um, but when you take it as a whole and you compare private versus public, you start to see major issues. For instance, you've never had newspaper articles about babies being put into boxes instead of incubators in the private sector, but we've had that in the public sector. Um, you've never had, um, examples of, of sort of slews of deaths, um, happening in ICUs, either neonatal or adult ICUs in, in, in private, but you've had that in public and, and repeatedly, I might add. Um, so the, that's the issue. But, but I think, Gareth, to get back to your original question, why is this so bad? You know, I still man the argument about everyone getting good health care. Um, that's the, arg- that's the argument for. Um, the argument against is how this actually rolls out because there's a number of steps which don't only affect healthcare, but they destroy the economy along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you look at healthcare, um, in the country and you say, well, we currently have, um, we currently have all these doctors and, uh, how it works, certainly in the private system is, uh, the doctors work as on a fee for service basis. In other words, they provide you with a service, you pay them. They bill you or your funder. So usually in private, it's your funder, the medical aid. Um, mm-hmm. and the hospital groups will do that too. Now, the NHI um, aims to make that essentially an illegal relationship. Okay, the fee for service, the doctors, if they, the fee for service remains, and there's debate about whether doctors would be salaried rather than fee for service, so the government would pay them or the hospital groups would pay them a salary to work, um, which would be far less than their potential earning, at least currently. Mm-hmm. Um, or whether whether the government would pay them a fee for service, but I've seen I've seen some of the um, initial um, costings that have been tabled for certain things, and I can tell you the government intends to pay five to ten times less uh, for the services of doctors than than is what 
what doctors are currently paid by sort of I mean, your standard medical aid. I mean, it, it stands to reason, and nobody can fight market economics, that doctors will just leave. They will. Yes, it's, oh, this is correct. Things, right? So you'll just lose the, doctors. This is correct. Doctors will either leave or they will no longer practice clinical medicine. Okay. So, so you will have a collapse in that. But, but there's a, there's a bigger point here, which is that we have about, we have about 9 million taxpayers, um, but we only have about 600,000 who are carrying the load. Um, in other words, our, our 1%. Okay. Um, and, and, and those people, 60 million people. No, no, 60 million people. You're saying only 600,000 are actually income taxpayers. Yes, that, well, not, not only 600,000, there's, there, there are, there are uh, roughly, according to the latest stats, somewhere around 9 million are income taxpayers. I'm saying the majority, the bulk of the money the government receives comes from about 600,000 people. And Canton can back me up on this. Um, Absolutely. The, the, the point I'm making is those 600,000 are the professionals in this country and are the, uh, the, the successful entrepreneurs. Okay. And a large percentage of that group is doctors. So of that 600,000, I would estimate that at least a hundred thousand of them paying the majority of tax in this country are probably doctors, right? So now you talk about losing one fifth of your tax base when those <laughs> doctors start to leave. But yeah, more but so, let's, you think- let's, let's not forget the knock on effect, okay? Because it's not just those hundred thousand people. Think about all of the other people right now who continue to live in and work in South Africa because we've got access to quality health care. So exactly, Canton. So you think the lawyers yes, the or the effect. other yes. part of the 600,000 are going to stay when there's no health care for them? They're not going to stay. And and here's another point. The, the medical industry is massive. The amount of jobs that come off a single private doctor's practice is huge. I know an orthopedic surgeon who provides employment probably to about 15 different people as a result of his practice being in existence. That's one orthopedic surgeon doing that. Okay. We have hundreds of them across the country. Um, you know, th- th- this is the level of, of economic destruction that will take its toll. And, you know, people say things like, oh, well, you know, the, we, we'll always make a plan. And, and I, I don't think that that's necessarily untrue, but you, you can't really make a plan for emergency health care. You know, we can build hospitals in Botswana or Namibia um, or maybe Mozambique gets rid of its terrorism problem and we can do that there. In fact, there are very nice hospitals. I've flown patients out of Mozambique. There's some incredible looking hospitals. There's no one in them um, virtually. Um, because they don't have the, the people to staff them. But there's some hospitals that have been built by private groups in Mozambique, for example, which, yes, you could theoretically transplant South African healthcare to. The problem is, is when you need to have your gallbladder out next week, Wednesday, that's not an issue. You can fly to whichever country and have your gallbladder taken out. When you have an acute problem right now, um, you cannot simply fly to another country to have that done. You know, when no. you need chemotherapy for the next six months, you cannot really go to another country to have that done. Um, if you need dialysis four, five times a week, you cannot simply be flying to another country or relocating to another country to have that done. The, 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 the bottom line is, is that we should be, we should be targeting good healthcare for everyone and trying to give everyone more access to the private system or improving right. the public system. That's, that's the fundamental. Uh-huh. Are the, are the medical aids, these huge big companies that offer private health insurance, are these people complicit in allowing this stupid legislation to go ahead? You remember when 
they made uh, that idiot Des Van Royen minister of, of finance. And the banks all stood up, went through to Jacob Zuma and said to him, if you do this, we will pull the trigger and ruin your economy and you will, you will be out. You will be on your ass. And it worked. They pressured him into getting, uh, you know, to, to, to removing Des Van Royen. Have the medical aides stood up at all against this idiocy? Have they said anything in defense of their own existence, for God's sake? Or have they been complicit? So I think I think the thing to understand there is that the, the biggest funder, as far as the medical aid is concerned, is Discovery Health. And, mm-hmm. you know, Discovery have been either pro-NHR previously um, in, in several statements they've made, or um, they've been... Or they've been on the fence. I mean, what I saw from the Discovery CEO um, yesterday, Ryan Noach, um, and the day before, um, is not being completely pro this NHR bill as it stands currently, but not either being completely against. The allegation against Discovery is that Discovery is has either been promised or very much believes that they are positioned to be the administrator of the NHR. Um, and if you uh, take into account that currently they have 6 million people insured under them, or I think Ryan said 4 million people, um, but I think, you know, they administrate other medical aids. They do the work for other medical aids, so they'll get a portion of that probably. But regardless, let's say 4 million people insured, and the opportunity is now to have 60 million people for which they administrate for, for which they take a similar fee to what they're currently taking for administrating Discovery Health members, that's a no-brainer for a businessman. If you say to a businessman, I'll give you 10 rand for 4 million times by 4 million or 10 rand times by 60 million, it's a simple mm-hmm. decision. Um, right. You, you know, so no, the medical aids have not really fought back. The, the smaller ones may have, but they certainly haven't got any traction. I'm not aware of any of the smaller ones having made big noise about this. Um, you know, the hospital groups haven't either. Um, famously, the Life uh, Healthcare CEO, uh, the previous Life Healthcare CEO, a couple of years back, held a press conference with Aaron Motswaledi, who was the health minister at the time, um, mm-hmm. uh, endorsing NHI. And, you know, they hugged each other. And, and um, that guy then got on a plane six months later and emigrated to Australia. Um, right. You know, so he, when he did that, he knew he was leaving the country, um, but he endorsed a system that, that, that will bring ruin to this country and, and the people of it. Um, so, so, you know, unfortunately, no. And I, I'm not, I, I think that in some instances there is, um, you know, malice, um, by certain people, but I, I think there's a lot of ignorance and a lot of sort of utopian beliefs. Um, and I just need to say one other thing, which is that this has nothing to do with healthcare for the ANC. Nothing. No, of course this not. has everything to do with money. It, 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 it really doesn't matter if in the end this creates better or worse healthcare. It's irrelevant. The first element of this is passing an income tax over and above your current income tax, which will force you to pay for the NHI. And in so doing, the rest of the NHI becomes a reality, whether they put it into law or not. And the reason for that is because once you pass an income tax, which goes onto people's PAYE, the way most people earn in this country, businesses, as they always have, will comply with the government, no matter how dictatorial or authoritarian they become. We saw that during COVID. Entire businesses were willing to shut themselves down under government fiat. Yeah. And 
And so, and so what happens is that income tax gets passed. The majority of people on medical aids are on lower plans, meaning they can afford a couple of grand a month. Um, but they're, you know, they're stretching themselves and they're not mm-hmm. paying for the highest possible plans. And the reason medical aid and private healthcare works is based on, is based on scale. So because there are so many people on medical aids, we can make private healthcare relatively cheap actually in this country. Our private healthcare for what we provide is far cheaper than the rest of the world. Even those places, if you compare like for like it, where they provide, have public systems like the NHI. Absolutely. We, we provide which is why medical tourism value. is such a thing right now. And we get a significant number of people who come in well, here so, to do, to do proceedings. And Jonathan, you know, just in terms of the the money side of things, uh, the money that we currently pay towards those medical aids, the idea is the government will now take that out and contribute that into a pool that will go into the NHI. And over and above that, they need to find an extra 256 billion rand per year Mm. in order to fund this thing. That's what they're talking about. So not only are you losing the contributions that you're putting in, to the medical aids, but you also have additional taxes. Uh, to the to, for me, Canton, I think we, we never get past that point because what I think happens is they pass the PAYE. Everyone on the lower end plans, as I'm talking about, drops off because they can no longer afford to both exactly. pay the new tax and to pay the medical aid. The medical aids then go, okay, well, uh, you know, a funder like Discovery goes, we used to have 4 million people. We now have uh, half a million. Okay. The, the wealthy who pay for Discovery, you know, top plans. Um, and so, uh, we now have the top people, but now because there's uh, less demand and oversupply, um, what will then happen is, it, in theory, prices will drop. But but at some point, the doctors aren't going to hang around because their their incomes will drop. So that the supply will quickly dwindle, and then what will happen is you'll have decreased decreased numbers, and so the 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 funding model will have to change. And in other words, those big plans will have to go up in price. So you won't be paying 10,000 rand a month for a top uh, discovery plan anymore. You'll be paying 20 or 30. Um, and so some of the, even the wealthy or the, the this middle class will start falling off um, yep. th- that boat. And so eventually you'll have the guys in Stellenbosch on, uh, they'll be on medical aid um, or whatever it resembles. Um, this is before they've even passed laws to make medical aid essentially illegal. Um, but the medical aid system will collapse. At that point, when there's no private funding model anymore, um, the government, the, the private hospital groups as businesses will go through to the government and beg them to buy beds from them. But they'll be buying beds at probably a third of the price of what the, the medical funders currently pay for those beds. So the, the businesses, the, the hospital groups as businesses will just readjust their models to, to make sure that they can provide the service. But whereas they used to maybe replace equipment every three years, suddenly they'll only replace equipment every 10 years where right. they used to, you know, so the whole system will start collapsing long before any of the stuff ever goes goes through into some sort of enforced law. And that's why I must warn people against it will never happen because the ANC can't achieve it. It's not about achieving it. The ANC has proven again and again that they'll stick a round peg uh, through a square hole. Yeah, okay. I mean, this is very, very depressing, and I don't think people are adequately <laughs> concerned. I don't think people are adequately concerned about what you're saying, and I think it's very, very important that everybody – what can we do? Do you go to your medical aid and say to them, listen, motherfuckers, stand up for yourselves, oppose this thing at all costs, or I'm out? Yeah, I think I think that's one op- opportunity. I mean, how many people have ever gone to the AGM of their medical aid? 
you know, and you can, um, you, uh, you, you are can, a member. That's correct. So, you know, you can go yeah, to the ATM. You see, with your you see the difficulty again, Jonathan, in terms of the way in which uh, one can end up approaching that is more often than not, it's not the individual that actually contracts with the medical aid. It's the company that ends up contracting with the medical aid. And in order for the individual to then uh, opt out, most companies don't allow you to opt out from the medical aid. Unless at the time of your joining the medical aid, you were able, uh, the company, you were able to show proof that you, in fact, already had adequate medical coverage with another medical aid. But otherwise, the ability to opt out is not there for most people. And so at that level, the medical aids effectively become a bit of a cartel because one is not able to to cut ties for them. Unless you go through the process at a company level of actually holding a vote among all of the employees to say, we are now going to go to the medical aids and tell them that we want to cut ties with them, just simply because of the fact that they are not standing up to government on this. But it's almost impossible for most people to actually go down that route. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, Canton. The reality is is your medical aid may be set upon you by your, your company who pays a portion, uh, but that doesn't preclude you from still going to the AGM. And I, I must say, if, if thousands of people rocked up at an AGM of a medical aid, which had never had more than 100 people in the room, and all those thousand people were saying, you on the board will do something about this, or, you know, we will vote you out or whatever process needed to be followed. Now that's, that's I, a I practice. That's a very practical suggestion. So when is the Discovery AGM? And, <laughs> well, it's not only Discovery. The, med- the, the other medical aids, I think we're picking on them. But I, No, I, for know, sure. They're, but they're, but they're, I, think, I, think it's important, I think it's important to pick on Discovery because they've been the most visible ally of government in terms of this entire process. They've been the ones who... That's, why I, that's why I asked the question. That's why yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want us to just breeze by, so, you know, it's not yeah. for us to villainize, uh, villainize the obvious villain the ANC, uh, the government in all of this, but there are people in the private sector who purport to act on our best, in our best interests and are not acting in our best interests at all. So yes, and, we and, must find and out. And we all know Discovery's record in terms of the vaccine rollout. Right. Um, you know, uh, so, bloody yeah, so we, we, we've got no reason to be charitable to them uh, in, in particular. Jonathan, I'm taking your point that, you know, other medical aids are, uh, you know, also should be engaged. But the fact is that the, the virtue signaling, by and large, has come from discovery. And that's why I think it's, it's particularly appropriate that discovery becomes the, the, the starting point. And, you know, if, if we have a couple uh, thousand people pitching yeah, I mean, their, I'm, their headquarters in Santon, I think that'll be a good thing. Yeah, perhaps. And, and you know, uh, as I say, that, that's one process. I think the other process, Gareth, which has been spoken about a lot uh, by certain civil groups, is that they're going to take this to court. You know, and they're going to, to, to fight it. Number one, to tie it up in the courts for as long as possible. Um, mm-hmm. which is a, 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 something I've heard many doctors, um, comment on. Well, it'll take, you know, it'll, it'll be stuck in the courts forever. Um, I think that's very hopeful. We have, um, essentially courts that have always ruled on the side of communism. Um, you know, even our Concord, um, took away land rights not too long ago. Um, if you have minerals or resources under your land that, that, uh, that used to be yours, um, that was, that was, um, expunged. Um, by the the uh, con court and and who basically said the state can can take that away from you um so i i don't feel that if this gets to the con court for example 
Um, and the concourse is being presented an argument by the state, which says we want to provide um, as many people as possible with access to healthcare. Um, which, by the way, I must just point out, you currently have access to healthcare. Every single person that's currently in this country has access to healthcare. Um, right. The, we already have national health. Uh, the idea that we don't have national health is complete bullshit. If you have anything happen to you um, by law uh, in, in an emergency, every single clinic and hospital in this country, including the private ones, have to treat you. Um, uh, so that's to start off with. And then with regards to any other medical ailment you have, you can walk into any clinic or hospital. Obviously, there's a process to follow, but you can walk into any clinic and hospital and get treatment. Um now, you know, I, I think, you know, we've got to support these, these, um, community groups and whoever else is going to get together and, and fight this. So if yeah. you see the likes of Sarkalicha, for example, I know they're, they're planning something. If you see they're going to, they're going to be doing this. Well, it costs a lot of money to sue the government because you know how this works. You've got to support these kinds of people. Give, give them a, a couple of grand now if you've got it. Uh, rather than having to to pay twenty thousand rand a month in health insurance in a couple of years' time because yeah, they're absolutely fucking... right, Gareth. You know, or you know, just give them fifty bucks a month, which is right. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. enough of us end up doing that, then it actually becomes. No. Go, go, well, Kenton, uh, I mean, Afri Forum's the example here, right? Uh, there yeah, are a whole exactly. bunch of people who give Afri Forum a hundred rand a month, and Afri Forum manages to produce um, significant things for that community, um, yeah. and as a byproduct for many South Africans. Well, well, and, right. well, and, uh, well, not just for that community, for the entire South African community, from my I, perspective. I, I don't want to be rude to our other guest who's waiting yeah. in the wings for us to talk about this 80.9 billion rand budget that was passed by Dada Morero in the Johannesburg Metro Council yesterday. And uh, she is a councillor herself, so we're going to get straight to her. I'm going to welcome her to the show this morning. Councillor Belinda Kaiser Echejon. Oh, my God, I swore I was going to get this right. I said it right twice before, Belinda. Um, Joku who is our, our guest this morning. She is a Ward 74 councillor and DA caucus leader in the city of Johannesburg. Belinda, it's good to have you on. How are you? Good morning, Gareth, and good morning to everyone else. Uh, thank you very much. I'm good, thank you. Listen, it's cold as hell in Johannesburg, but it's not as cold as the hearts of those people in the council who've asked for even more money than before. You know, I, I said earlier to uh, Bakabantu, who was on the show with me, where do you actually see any evidence at all of all of this money that we've just um, seen voted into the hands of the Joburg Council? 80.9 billion rand, B, billion with a B. Uh, a total of 166 people voted in favor of the budget. 68 voted against it. There were no abstentions. Here's what the budget, this is the top line stuff you need to know, everybody. The new ba- budget adds 3 billion on top of the previous year's budget. So there's a little bit of inflation, but possibly no other good reason for that. The budget includes tariff hikes of 2% for property. So we're going to pay 2% more if we own property. 9.3% for water and sanitation. That's gone up, even though for many people, water and sanitation are not guaranteed. Uh, an electricity tariff of 14.97%, even though that's not guaranteed to improve any kind of quality of service delivery there, or even the accessibility to, to electricity, a refuse tariff of 7% just to remove your rubbish. So what is going, what is going on here? What, 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 what actually happened here? Did you oppose or did you uh, say yes to this, um, this budget? Well, the deer actually opposed it, and precisely because of some of the concerns you are raising. 
we are not seeing any of that monies, even on the previous budget, being sent, uh, oh, being yeah. spent uh, among communities. I mean, um, for example, the city has deteriorated in a downward spiral, uh, mm-hmm. even in response time over the past month or two. And uh, it, it's evident that nothing of that money is going to be spent. And on top of it, it's unfunded. Um, we don't believe that it's funded. Uh, they haven't given us sufficient evidence that they have obliged with the AG's uh, comments that was made in the reports. And that is one of the reasons why we uh, oppose the budget. And also the ANC cannot be trusted with money. Uh, they've proven it over and over again. Yeah, I'm sure you heard we were talking about exactly this just five seconds ago when it comes to NHI. All right, so so where are they spending this money? Where is 80.9 billion rand going? Where do they put this? Because we certainly don't see any evidence of it. A lot of the money is spent on job creation. Um, we were shocked uh, yesterday uh, that uh, the mayor uh, and the, in the soca, the mayor mentioned it in the in the uh, budget. Sorry, when you talk about job creation, do you mean just handing out money to people for doing fuck all, or do we actually mean promoting business? We have yet to see what's going to happen, and that is why in my speech yesterday, no. I said mm-hmm. that this is Premier mm-hmm. Lesufi's, uh election campaign budget. Because you cannot talk about job creation at a local government level uh, when it is a national and a provincial competency. We know that there are effects, obviously, because people are EPWP workers, but that is not really job creation. It's not eradicating poverty, and it's not the competency of local government. Local local government must make sure that the streets are, are clean, the sewerage works, your pipe works, your, your electricity is done. I mean, I'm a ward councillor in, in Melrose, for example, and yesterday was a typical example of what I've used, that for four days, Birdhaven and Melrose, since Saturday, had been without electricity. And it's been an absolute nightmare to even get hold of officials. So you talk about job creation. Where are the officials that are supposed to answer the calls? To respond to residents. And those were some of, it's just simple, simple things that uh, we cannot even get done under the ANC and its <coughs> gloom partners, which we call the, uh, the collision of doom and gloom. I mean, we can't get, all of to, to get any work done. I want to point out to people that you were also the DA's counselor in 2018 and 2021 for Cosmo City and Zantzbrecht, right? Yes, I was. So you really have. You've dealt with communities across the board in Johannesburg in terms of poor, good service delivery, poor service delivery. You've really got your hands dirty here. Okay, I'm going to let Canton and Jonathan ask you a few questions. I'm sure they have a few, both resident in Johannesburg. Canton has has had many things to ask previous mayoral candidates. Of course, Belinda is not a mayoral candidate. She can't answer all the questions, but perhaps she can help with a few. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, the starting point from, from my side uh, is to what extent now is there the ability to have actual oversight on how that money is getting spent? And, and more importantly, um, is, is it possible for us to have constant updates that actually feed into uh, the public domain that show almost on a line-by-line basis exactly where the money is going to? Because I don't think we have enough of that flow of information coming out of the municipal level. 
I agree with you, Kenton, and that is yesterday, um, just to give you a bit of background of why, of one of the reasons why we even opposed this budget. Uh, first of all, we felt that there wasn't uh, enough transparency in terms of the line items that we wanted to see where it will be spent. Uh, we had a meeting with the MMC of Finance on Friday as the DA. We took a whole delegation because we raised concerns because there wasn't any clarity or, you know, clear, um, clear indication of where the money will be spent. There's a lot of other items on, 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 in the line items, especially JRA. Um, it is very difficult at the moment to get any information which should go through the section 79 which one of your ward council, if you're a ward council, obviously your ward councillors and some of the PR councillors will sit on and they will get those reports through the Section 79. But one of the failures that we've had recently is that the Section 79 committees have not even set. And some of those... Just help me uh, for a second, what is Section 79? Okay. Section 79 is the oversight committees at, that uh, is chaired by the Speaker and the Chair of Chairs. Every councillor, you, you, there's 10 uh, portfolios uh, in, the, in the city council, which is headed up by MMCs. So those Section 79 committees are oversight committees that give oversight over the executive, uh, meaning the mayor and his mayoral committee. So there's a Section 79 that literally mirrors that portfolio. And then we've also got another oversight, a few oversight committees, uh, that is the uh, municipal accounts and also governance. So a lot of the flaws we've already picked up, uh, some is on governance, some of the governance issues that people were refusing to account. And if you haven't even had reports like a Section 71 report that gives a lot more detail as well, uh, that hasn't come to council, and then they want to pass a budget. So it's very difficult uh, to, to just say yes when you haven't seen what has happened, what's, you know, line items. And when we had met with the MMC, we said to him, give us the line items as the DA so we can discuss mm -hmm. with our caucus and they can then have a quick discussion with their residents. Uh, just, you know, sometimes it's easy to just talk to residents associations who generally represent the residents in particular mm -hmm. suburbs or areas. And then we can at least have an idea of, of where exactly the money is going. We saw line item on a, line items on screens and we asked for it to be sent to us so we could at least have a look over the weekend. None of these was done. And yesterday, the budget was stable, even after requests for these to be sent. So we're saying, how can we approve a budget that in the reports we have that doesn't have the line items say that, um, look, um, the AG said, it's comment, com made comments in the reports that were provided to us that uh, it's unfunded. And we're not seeing the line items in detail. We want to know what we are voting well, for so we can explain to you as a resident. Yeah, I'm just horrified that the that the... Council of Johannesburg thinks it's going to be okay to tell us how much more we must pay without telling us what more we're paying for. Those line items you're talking about. It's well, absolutely outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gareth, I, I, I'm go sorry. Ahead, please, please go ahead, Councillor. That's fine. I'll, I'll go I'm, after. I'm just, you know, yesterday, um, I, I, I'm one of, one of the most, I think, vocal ward councillors and I fight literally every day with everybody. And, um, 
one of the things I said to the MMC yesterday, um, it's clear that there's quite a disconnect between the mayor, the MMC of finance, and the residents. If you cannot even attend an IDP session to hear what people are complaining about, what are the issues, what exactly informs your budget? So you do have a tick box exercise, only attend certain uh, 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 IDP sessions that uh, likely is only your constituency. But when you're the mayor, the MMC, you are, you are responsible for the whole city, irrespective of people who voted for you or not. So you must give people a voice and you must listen to people. And that, we believe, also haven't been done. So that's the biggest problem we have with this budget. I mean, it's an interesting point that you raise because um, I, I feel like there may be a little bit of uh, throwing stones in glass houses here. Um, you know, you talk about giving a voice to the to the residents, um, but in Paul Palazzi um, was uh, had her own issues in this regard. I mean, the DA every time uh, has it's held power in Johannesburg has passed significant increases on the budget, has increased my rates and taxes repeatedly. Um, I haven't seen an improvement in service delivery. I had to try and get a, a manhole cover on Oxford Road replaced. It took nine months for Paul Palazzi's government to do that. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I have significant concerns that, uh, you know, the DA knows how to saber rattle when they're not in power. And when they're in power, they do many of the same things. Um, I suppose my, my question to you would be, um, other than being able to write in a line item, which is just basically incompetence on the part of the ANC, it doesn't matter. They can write in a line item for you. You still won't vote for the budget because we know they're going to steal the money. But um, I'm not sure what the DA does when, when they're in power. And, and my question for you is um, you've been a councillor for quite a long time. Maybe next time we have a DA mayor, should it not be a councillor that has actually been on the ground for a long time instead of someone who's been elevated to that position uh, because they dress nicely? Parachuted in, yeah. Um, um, that replies to no. Mashaba and Palazzi, by the way. <laughs> um, I'm not going to go into the merits of being parachuted. What I can tell you, there no is a, you. there is a bit of there is an advantage if you, for example, is a ward councillor or have been a councillor for some time. There is an advantage because you tend to be a bit more in touch. And uh, I always say to people, I was a PR councillor, which is a proportional representation councillor, where I was in Cosmos City. And I exposed a lot of the corruption and also the COVID problems. And they threatened to arrest me in Dunsprate and in Cosmos City over that time. Uh, it does help if you've been a councillor for some time, because it gives you um, at least an added advantage to be in touch. You've been in touch uh, with the community all the time, not only when it's election time, for example. Uh, as a ward councillor, you are forced to be on the ground. Um, this Your, your assertion <laughs> about uh, what we do differently or what uh, Palazzo was doing or our government, because I served in Palazzo's government as the MMC mm -hmm. of Development Planning. And a lot of uh, the issues we sat with was, you know, when you it's pretty much what happened in Cape Town years when the DA first took over. I know what you're going to say before you say it. 
I can complete your yes, sentence for you. The, the <laughs> legacy problems take a long time to get over and it will take years to fix. Is that about right? More or less to an extent, but there are, system, there are systems that can be changed. And I've managed to, for example, in the portfolio that I headed, it was a little bit easier. The difference with Joburg is that you're also sitting with, um, with, uh, you know, officials that have already been placed there that you have to deal with and might even be hostile to this new style of governing of people wanting to have people on the ground. And that is the difference uh, with Joburg as well, that it's been so difficult uh, for us to effect the changes we want to change. We had brilliant plans and we still have, which I believe we will implement, but with officials, um, yeah, sorry. (laughs) I am interrupting, but I I do want to just understand why why when you're in power or when you were in power and perhaps the next time you are in power, it becomes so difficult to enact those changes. I, I, I'm very confused about why, for example, if there are potholes in the road, it is very hard to just fix them. That's not a legacy problem. If there's a pothole today, all right, you can literally find it on ways. So you don't need to invest in any technology. You can open ways and you can, find all the potholes. I'm sure as a government, you could even probably go to the people who run ways and they'd send you a, pr- they'd send you a printout of the GPS locations of all of those. Um, and then all you do is you go and you take some budget and you hire people or you take your own people who know how to fix a road and you send them to do it. Um, the DA, unfortunately, wants to follow all co- – you're going to tell me that there's rules and you've got to pass it through some standing committee yes. and you've got to – yeah. So here's what I think as a resident. Screw the rules. Fix my roads. Uh, as a resident, I would love to have exactly the same. Screw the rules and fix the potholes. But then you're going to sit with AG reports that are going to have... Who cares? Who cares? Travel. What are the consequences for those AG rules? It doesn't make any difference in other municipalities. I mean, yeah. what, 70, uh, sorry, 93% of them are bankrupt and have uh, unclean AG reports. So who gives a shit what the uh, the the, uh, the AG says? Good governance is important because, as you good say, good governance is bureaucracy. If you say, go and fix the pothole, I can get my friend to go and fix the pothole and, and take a kickback on that, for example. And this, this, there are, there are reasons for rules being there. And I understand, obviously, um, you know, there's better collaboration with the private sector could have been uh, much made much easier, which I am a big, big, big uh, proponent of, working better with the private sector. And I think uh, because of this red tape in government, uh, it becomes so difficult to, to do it immediately. But one other thing, for example, if you talk about a JRA, I don't know, um, obviously it's a while back, but there, as a ward councillor, what I've experienced at the depots, uh, a lot of times what you would like to do at the depots is not even material that we found there's no material and there's no money for the material. So even if you pass the budget, it's still not enough. You, the depot managers will tell you there's no material, uh, to, to, to fix the pothole. There's no tar to fix the pothole. So those are the, some of the legacy issues you're talking about. And it's unfortunate that even when you say, okay, there's legacy issues, let's get the private sector to come in and assist. They make it so difficult in terms of uh, government's uh, uh, procurement processes to get even the private sector to come in and assist. 
it's very simple to just simply get three quotes and go with the lowest of the quotes and get it fixed. And in terms of the officials that you are saddled with within the, that you're not able to get rid of, I'm saying it's actually fairly easy to get rid of them. On day one, when you take over in the administration, you call all of those officials in and say, look, we know you were part of the previous regime. We want you out. We want to draw up a mutual separation agreement with you. And here's what we are offering you in terms of, um, of, of your pricing. Please pack your stuff and go. We will continue this process through the CCMA. But in the meanwhile, we're bringing in a new person. And then you go through the process in the CCMA. They go, the CCMA is going to say, all right, this is an unfair dismissal. We need to pay this person out for two years. Pay the person out for two years. Because you're going to be in power exactly. for five years. It's worth Call it. it. Call it. I can you know, tell you we've done that. We've done some of them. And guess what oh, happened? Name them. Name them. In January, the they came back. In January, they came back. When the ANC got back, when Tapelo Ahmad was back into power, they came back and we were outvoted. We've done a few of those, especially with senior officials. Uh, what you're saying works with senior officials. But at the lower level, it's not that difficult. And that's where actually, uh, it's not that easy. And that's exactly where the service delivery happens. And you have strikes. And you have pick it up, for example, throwing rubbish in front of your doorsteps, and we're sitting with mm. bigger problems. So we try up, again, but again, the pick it up problem is directly the result of the DA government. It was under Herman Bashaba, who insisted on insourcing all of these employees. I know people are, people are enjoying this, and Canton and Jonathan are asking questions that ordinary people in this city want to ask, and and I I understand the frustration, but I do not want us to pile on to Belinda, who's come on. No, this I morning. don't. I don't think we're piling on to Belinda. I think we're very sympathetic towards Belinda, and and and, and frankly, Gareth, we're appreciative of her being on the show, and Absolutely. and outlining these problems. But what no, we are doing, I, I, I need to support what Canton. What Canton's saying, I support, you know, I know Belinda works very hard because I have a counselor who works very hard. And generally, counselors are the hardest working people, but they're not mm -hmm. the seen people. And that was my point about who should be the next mayor the next time the DA comes into power. I don't want someone who hasn't been involved and who doesn't know what it means to be a resident on the ground and to suffer with these issues. I want a counselor who's been battling these issues for years and who's willing to take hard measures um, and isn't a face for the DA. I don't care about the DA's faces. I'm done with that. Um, and, yeah. and frankly, you know, you can tell all your counselors in your next meeting and, and all your colleagues that if they carry on doing this, they're losing people's votes. That's the reality. And it's nothing against you as a counselor. You do a job. I will carry on voting. I might add, I will, I, my vote is not for the DA. It's not necessarily for the DA. I'm not saying it's not up for grabs, but it's not necessarily nationally up for the DA. But my local vote, I will vote for my DA councillor just because she's very good. If she changed party, I would vote for that party. She's exceptional. Um, I'm in the same that's, boat. That's, I've, I've that's voted really for the, the DA councillor in, uh, in my suburb as well. It's interesting. I've, I've also got a, a, a female DA councillor. I've got to say that the women are really standing their ground and doing a fantastic job. I, I, I know a lot of men who are in, you know, in local government are doing a good job too. <clears throat> but it seems to me that there are exceptional women especially in the DA who are trying their damnedest. And uh, you know what, Belinda, well done to you. I think what we've done here is we've kind of started a campaign for you, whether you like it or not. I know you didn't come <laughs> on to do this. <laughs> but whether you, whether you like it or not, now you're going to be a, a, a candidate. So let's just talk about what's going on at the moment because you are in council. You can tell us a little bit about this. This, this Al-Jama or whatever it is party that was the, you know, they, they were the party who elected the, the last mayor who was, 
I don't know, he was in for like five days or something and God alone knows yeah. what damage he wrought. But what is going on with the, 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 the mayor of Johannesburg? Kenny Kunene? I mean, what? Give us some clarity here. It seems like an absolute disaster. I'm not aware of Kenny Kunene being the mayor, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the mayor at the moment is Cabello Guamanda. That's the current mayor. Used to be Tapela Ahmad from Aljamain. Now it's Cabello Guamanda. Um, so, the mayor, the, the mayor's soca speech, uh, we felt was not only vague, but we could see that he was pulled in different directions. Um, as you would, because if you are a party that has less than 1% and you're having two big parties pulling you around as the mayor, it becomes a problem. I don't believe he's his own person, and I don't believe he's up for the task, in my view. Um, you ask simple questions based on his soca speech, and he can't answer and then pulls the race card and tell us about 30 years ago about apartheid, which I believe is an old argument, uh, because we're 13 years, 30 years in, into democracy. And, you know, it, it has about, it's about people getting services and it's about you making the right decisions to at least try as much as possible to accommodate what the people want. And um, the mayor has been missing in action. Uh, he hasn't spoken. He's, he's even mm-hmm. ran away from the media. And we were uh, concerned on the day of Isoka. It is the first time in the history of Johannesburg that an executive mayor was not giving a press interview. He left uh, under the guise that he's not feeling well. And we said, okay, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But the DA, we wrote. I asked this chief uh, of the DA to please write and find out if it's got a medical certificate or everything. We saw him pop up and opening some other uh, community centers. So my view is that the mayor uh, is not up to the task. Um, at least if he, if he would uh, at, at least be open and transparent about some of the challenges. Nobody's perfect, but he's not even open and transparent, and he's being pulled by the nose by the ANC and the EFF. What a disaster. What a disaster. We have a disaster on our hands. Um, we seriously have a disaster on our hands, and it's residents like you, me, who's going to feel the heat when this 80 billion rand budget that has been passed, you're not going to see any difference on the ground. And that is exactly what's been happening. I have a very practical solution to offer right now to <laughs> everyone in the city of Johannesburg. Go off grid in terms of electricity and then stop paying your rates. It'll there fix we go. The problem very quickly. <laughs> so I just want to, I just maybe as a last point, Gareth, I know we're running out of time, but I just want to point this out. Um, I, my um, area um, and an, a, a bordering area um, are busy looking at doing exactly that, Canton, whereby the entire area will stop paying rates and taxes. Um, it will be paid into a trust account with lawyers, uh, with attorneys. Um, and we will go to court against the city. Uh, you will get not a cent from us. We will still be paying our rates and taxes, so good luck cutting us off. Um, and it will be subject to uh, a pending uh, court matter, um, and we will be going to court to basically say you're not providing services so you no longer get any money from us. And frankly, that's what everybody should be doing. We should be cutting off funds from the government. Um, you don't need any of our money. Um, and, you know, as you, as you were, you were mentioning there, Councillor, you, you know, the, the reality is 
I don't really care who the mayor is. I never want to know who the mayor is. It's not important. I don't need to know who the mayor is, who the MMC is. They shouldn't have official Twitter accounts. They should have nothing because they shouldn't be doing anything I need to see, right? They should be fixing the freaking roads, fixing the pipes, making sure the sewerage happens. I don't care. That's It's a job. It's a real, you are not important. You, your name is not important. Your title is not important. You are not an important person. You are a person who has been voted in to do a job, do the job, or get out. Right. Okay, well, you get the last word. Go ahead. Gareth, just one uh, thing I would say. You know, unfortunately, I can't be a proponent of not paying rates to the city. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That you're on your own there. (laughs) But um, I must say that um, this is one of the issues I questioned um, when with the executive mayor and and the MMC of finance. He's got this brilliant uh, budget without telling us exactly where it's going. City Power has been a problem child. It was $6.5 billion in the red when we got it, uh, when we were in government. And uh, one of the mistakes, and I said to colleagues that we did, is that we said we're not going in when Dr. Palazzo was, was the mayor. We're not going to come in and say, this is what we found. We're just going to try and fix it. And that is when we started the process, obviously having the energy in Daba, having the IPPs, uh, you know, trying to send out uh, RFQs for requests for proposals for IPPs and making it easier. And that is uh, for independent power producers to avoid um, this uh, rate boycott and people going off the grid. Because if you provide services, people are ready to pay. People are really willing to pay. And uh, I said to the, uh, the, the, the MMC yesterday, where are you going to get the money from, from the rate payers when people are going off the grid? It's an unrealistic budget. You cannot, uh, you're not going to be able to get the money that you are projecting because people are going off the grid because people are tired of promises and uh, they want services. So um, this is one of the things uh, that we questioned uh, the other day, but I can tell you much more that the issue of fighting for you uh, and getting uh, at least rebates on some of the the issues where you are saving the city money uh, is something that the DA obviously will be fighting for quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, some of the other issues like revenue generation, like um, auto advertising, the precinct planning that they are uh, proposing as well, which was started by us, which they voted against, um, and making it easier to generate revenues in those precincts, right. which will I'm be in- policing as well. I'm going to have to draw this to a close, but thank you, Councillor. Uh, Councillor Belinda Kaiser Echejon. Echejon. I'm going to do this. <laughs> Belinda Kaiser Echejonjoku. Thank you Belinda, so much. Please, please tell us how you say your last name. It's Belinda Kaiser Echejonjoku. Thank you. I, I really, I did my damnedest, but I'm obviously useless about this. But thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much, Gareth. Uh, thank Thanks you, so ma'am. Much, um, and uh, Ken Finn, always good to see you. Thank you very much for being on. And Jonathan, thank you for explaining the NHI to those of us who are still uh, in the dark or choosing to be ignorant about it. We, yeah, we Gareth, I, I, I suppose the, the biggest thing probably uh, people can do is just talk about it. Just talk about it and, and make it a topic. Uh, make it a topic of discussion at work, at home. Make this meeting. A, like Ken make, said, we go, find out. Make, you, you know, make it a well, central issue. Medical, whoever you your know, medical aid. Hold their feet to the fire, for God's sake. Yeah. 
make it a central issue because whether you like it or not, it's, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for clearing it up. Good to see you both. And uh, thank you for joining us this morning. If you were, if you were listening to us or watching on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe. We will see you in the burning platform. I'll be back in uh, a week from now. So uh, stick around. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Bye-bye.